With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi folks, how are you? Um, I hope this finds you well. Um, it is Monday, the 12th of June, as I'm recording this. Uh, I've got a bit of a spring in my step this Monday morning, um, which is a nice way to start the week. It's not always the case, but this Monday I'm kind of radiant and ready to go. I don't know if you can hear it as well, but oh, it's just stopped. It's, it's the it's the nature of the business, you know, where we both, my husband and I both work from home and do various things from home. Uh, my other half currently uh, doing some voice warming up ahead of a show this week. So he's like, I've just got to go and sing for an hour, which is, I've got to say, the most beautiful soundtrack to walking around the house and getting sorted for the day. So we've got Ocean of Night being sung in the background, which you may be able to pick up, you may not. So we don't have any soundproofing in the house. So hey-ho. Anyway, I hope you're well um, and I hope you've had a great weekend. There is so much exciting stuff coming up over the next few weeks. Uh, both in terms of, you know, those kind of big summer blockbusters, um, those big moments on TV, uh, to speak of the new Black Mirror series that is coming on Netflix. Um, we're going to be speaking to Charlie Brooker about that on the podcast, which I'm so excited about. And I've been lucky enough to have advanced screenings of the new series, which is, as you'd expect, brilliant, incitive, terrifying and I do. I think there's something brave about the show as well. Anyway, really excited to chat to Charlie Brooker, also James Mangold for Indiana Jones, uh, Andy and his sister Barbara Machete for The Flash, which I saw at the weekend, and I I thought the film was phenomenal. I got to say, I just love the tone of it. I know there's a lot of controversy surrounding it with regards to Ezra Miller, which resulted in a really interesting conversation with my 15 year old as well. Um, But we'll talk about that uh, when we get to that episode with Andy Muschietti. Also, uh, we've got a special Wicker Man edition coming up that I mentioned last week. But very excited because this week it's a welcome return to soundtracking to our very good friend, uh, the composer Daniel Pemberton, who has provided the score for the simply, I mean, it's kind of hard to put into words, sensational Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I saw this a couple of weeks ago and with the first film, we as a family have gone back to it time and time and time again. I think I've said this before as well, so sorry if I'm repeating myself. But we also had the luxury of we were on a family trip to New York for a couple of days and we went to see it. You know, you go to New York, like, let's go to the cinema. But there's something about experiencing cinema in American cinemas, I think, as well, that there's a, I don't know, they just kind of go for it. And we went to see um, the original Spider-Man animation film in a cinema in Chelsea in New York. So we came out onto the streets where... A lot of it is set. So there was something really magical about it. So we have a real love of that first film. And we were kind of slightly, well, I was slightly apprehensive about going in. Not apprehensive, but kind of going, how? Inquisitive, I guess. How are they going to be able to match it, surpass it, do something different? And they have. They have in so many ways. I think by the way that they've kind of cultural representation, the way that they've uh, used animators of all ages, you know, across different animation types to bring through characters and story. And I think that one of the things that 
connects the films, so keeps that through line, but also elevates it is Daniel's music. Uh, and that's a combination of the way that he scores it and also the way that he weaves the score in between all these new tracks that are there. And we talk about that in terms of how everybody and anybody wants to have a track on one of these Spider-Man films. So we'll hear plenty of Daniel's music from the film throughout the conversation. And we're going to start with this cue, Spot Holes One. We've watched the first film so many times and we also were in New York and went to see it in a cinema in Chelsea with the kids and we came out onto those streets in New York and it felt like it was it was such yeah. a physical experience and listened to that soundtrack combined with the score so much. And I went yeah. into seeing this new one thinking, how the hell are they going to do all, all of that to even level it or... Or, or surpass it. And you've done both. I'm so glad that the response you've been getting and the film that has been getting has been really, really highlighting how important your music is in this because it's such a mood setter. It's such a character. It's such a presence. It's a companion. It's so many things in this film. And I was thinking about how I was going to talk to you about it today and go, I didn't know where to start, to be honest, because, well, tell me after that first film, did you kind of obviously stop and work on other things? Or were you? Did, or had you already kind of known that the next one or the next two were coming? And is it already kind of, you know, sort of simmering away in your head sort of thing? Spidey has been, like, the second one has been, like, sticking around with me ever since the first one. Because I kind of felt, with the first one, I got to do something that felt, you know, everyone was sort of pushing at the boundaries with that film. And I felt I was sort of getting there with the music. But, you know, often you'd find... Anytime there was a really juicy bit of real estate, they'd be like, we're going to put a song in there. And you'd be like, oh, okay. But with the second film, because the universes are so much bigger and the emotions are so broader that, you know, there was a lot more space to score. And I think you get to see a bit more like how I'm trying to connect everything. And for ages, I've been, you know, it's been a big burden, this film, in the sense of like, you know, as a composer, you can only do what, you're sort of somewhat subservient to the film you're working on. Yeah. And so you could go, oh, well, I, you know, I, could, I couldn't write a bigger score because the film couldn't take it. Or, you know, I tried to do big melodies. Director didn't like it. But with Spidey, I kind of knew this was like, it's like kind of the World Cup final, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's coming up. You're playing in the World Cup final. And so there's no excuses not to, like, basically have all your shit together. So <laughs> yeah. I, I spent years and years, like, just 
tinkering in the background while I was doing other films on Spider-Verse, just trying ideas out, building sounds, research and development really on, on every aspect of it. So by the time we actually got down to really like, okay, let's really go with this, I'd already got like a big palette of, you know, unique noises and ideas that meant we could start running because with the first one I was kind of making up as I went along and the first one I was doing a lot more things I had no idea how how or if they'd work like the record scratching the record scratching the first one was like a really big part of the film but I didn't know if it'd work and how it'd work and then by the time we got the second one I've gone through that process so I've sort of learned it and it's now just another tool we can use in the in the new one. one as well you've got as well as having like you know multiple spider people (laughs) yeah and with that you have multiple cultural situations cultural landscapes universes time frames it's the seamless nature that you go from even within a conversation between two characters between two of those things the fluidity of it's just extraordinary it's very hard because <laughs> uh, you've got to think like when you're writing stuff on this everything has to connect so you have to mm-hmm. write music and come up with ideas that can connect with each other you have to have themes that can connect sounds that feel unique to each universe but that don't tread on the toes of other other characters yeah and that's you know that was really hard trying to find make Gwen's sound different enough to Miguel's sound but that they could work together in another piece and again that's through a lot of almost research of just trying things out trying things out until you find the right thing but for me like the kind of jumping between universes is is really fun because I've spent so long trying to do many different types of music in all Mm -hmm. my projects this is a good way where I can sort of pull them all together and go okay let's let's pull some opera in pull some punk rock breaks some hip-hop orchestral writing and then just shove it all in this crazy pot that is the score.
Were you given any limitations? Well, I was told things they didn't like. <laughs> um, no, there wasn't really, I don't think there were like any limitations placed on me. It's more like I'd impose them. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. there's really boring, nerdy stuff. Like you'd find certain harmonic ideas wouldn't really feel right within our world. And it's trying to work out like how, how you express all the different emotions, but keep it feeling like it's, Spider-Verse, because in the temp, they sometimes put over some of the early scenes, they just threw some sort of generic superhero music over some of the action scenes. And what was interesting was just how those scenes didn't feel like of this world in this movie. Yeah. They just felt slightly boring. I mean, you know, they were very early animatics. But I think because I'm allowed to be free in how I write and I've I've got like like a strong thought about like what this film should sound like and feel like, they sort of seem to trust me to do that, which is which is nice. How much does that does that um, element of it influence you as well? Because that's another thing that I think works beautifully is there are so many different types of animation in this film. It's beautiful, even the way that like Hobie's jacket's drawn and stuff, and his dreads to th- that. I think I mentioned to you that particular scene with Gwen and her dad. The, the music fits the type of animation as well as the character, as well as the story, as well as the, you know, as, as, <coughs> as, as the narrative as well sort of thing. So how much does that, does that influence you at all, the kind of visual element to it in terms of how each different character or universe is animated? Yeah, I mean, it has a really big impact. Like, in fact, one of the first things we did in this movie was a, I went to Sony in LA and all the directors we all sat around a massive table and they did this huge presentation of all the different art styles and the universes and the characters and the worlds. And at first you're like, Oh my God, this is so much to take in. Um, (laughs) And they'd break down how the art styles are going to work. You know, they showed me things like how 2099's world worked. And there's so much crazy stuff in that, just in the way the animation works, which is, you know, based sort of more on like 60s, 70s concept art, like futuristic Mm -hmm. concept art, like, Sid Mead. And a lot of that is uh, kind of marker pens. I don't know the exact phrasing, but you can kind of see, if you look on in that film, you can see lots of the cross lines going across yeah. the shading. And they showed me the, like this kind of whole sort of system they were building to make that all work. And then they showed me Gwen's world, which is like more dreamy watercolors. Punk's world, obviously influenced by fanzines like Sniffing Glue um, and that kind of fanzine aesthetic. And as someone who used to co-edit a fanzine, Shortish twat. <laughs> uh, I, I like fanzine world. Um, and, and so I was really influenced by those. So this is, you know, the first film was all about Miles and sort of the hip hop culture and record scratching. And again, that was the way everything was glitching and moving. That felt right.
But in Gwen's yeah. world, it's more dreamy. There's obviously the influence of her band and her drumming, but also the sort of movement of the colours. I really wanted to make that come across in the score. Whereas 2099's world is incredibly technological, futuristic, sort of quite aggressive in a way. And so, again, you're like very much influenced by that sound. You know, the sounds in 2099's world are far more aggressive than the sounds you hear in, in Gwen's world. <laughs> Punk's world is just kind of feedbacky, crazy punk stuff. We're not there long enough in this film. I'm hoping there's more. More Hobie. Because, yeah, because I did see how they were going to design certain things in his world, and I can't talk about it. But okay. if you're English, if you're English, they're really yeah. cool. The best casting as well, Daniel Kaluuya for that role is just... Yeah, although oh. I don't know if I... The one thing I don't agree with that is because I was the voice of Spider-Punk for all of, like, one day. <laughs> oh, mate! Because uh, no one in America can do English accents, it turns out. And they had a scene and they hadn't cast Daniel yet. And they were like, we really need someone English to do the voice of, of punk. So I read a whole bunch of things very badly, I must say. And uh, as much as it hurts me to say, I think the other Daniel has done a much better job of that character. Mate, those tapes are somewhere. Someone has those hope, tapes. Oh, no, I really hope they don't. <laughs> I'm definitely better <laughs> off sticking to music. 
like I'm really inspired by the creativity in the film and also the kind of lack of reverence to one style, you know? I yeah. love the way it's it's just like let's tear it all up. Like I found it's weird. I remember working with Danny Boyle a few times, and one of the things that I always got from Danny was his just uh enthusiasm for for, for anything. You know, you might have some filmmakers like everything's got to be shot on 70 mil IMAX, which is great. That's, you can make amazing films that way. But what was interesting with Danny, he'd be like, well, let's do that. And then we'll just go to an iPhone footage and then we'll go to something else. And he's quite punk in that way. Yeah. And I learned quite a lot from him, I think, in, in that you can jump between mediums and you can jump between, uh, I don't say qualities, but everything has its own quality. And if, if it services a story, then it doesn't matter. And I think because this film jumps around all over the place, I can do that with the music, but I've got to somehow also keep it coherent. it starts in terms of that idea that you know we start with Gwen really in that whole and you know she's a drummer it's Gwen yeah. she's a drummer in a band and it's like of course she is she's cool as yeah. hell it's like it's brilliant who's in the band my band yeah okay so my band the drums are played by this guy called Mike Smith who's absolutely brilliant and he plays on so many of my scores and I can give him terrible direction and he'll just and he'll just do it i don't even know how he does it because it's it's not like i'm saying oh can you play that bit a bit harder or give me more hi-hat i'll be like give me a hi-hat like shuffly but like more sneaky but make it hit bar 17 <laughs> like this and he'll just get it and so he's he's brilliant we've got a guitarist you know the main band on this is uh mike uh guitarist called leo abrahams who also plays on all yeah. my stuff and then we've got two different bassists. We've got John Noyce and Sam Dixon and, and then me doing some electronics. But yeah, they're, they're, kind of, they're kind of my band in a way to basically play most of my scores. <laughs> I don't think we look as cool as Gwen's band, um, <laughs> but I think our band works better under the pressures of a session, film session environment. But it's such a cool way to start the film. It's a great, it's a great start of the film, really, you know, in terms of going, oh, wicked, here we go. Yeah, I, I think I like about his film is it's bold. So Phil Lord, who's sort of writer and one of the producers, I'm kind of very involved in this film. He, you know, that that was his big idea early on that we started with Gwen drumming. And the really interesting thing about the opening was I had written a bunch of other ideas. Originally, we started the opening and it was a lot more down, you know, melancholic because uh, Gwen's not in a good place. And we had this beginning that I was not as keen on, shall we say. And even my cue names, because when you write cues, you don't <laughs> give them really cool titles like Spider Gwen or, you know, or, you know, Miles Returns. They're always called things like Mopey Gwen <laughs> or like Miles Runs or Chase Seven, you know, and you retitle them to the album. But the opening, there was a cue called Mopey Gwen, which was not <laughs> probably the best decision to call it that. And... And I always felt the opening wasn't doing it. It just felt like a weird way into the film. And then mm. 
we were sort of rooting through some stuff and we found the very first thing I wrote for the film, which was like, like after reading the script and doing some like early, early, early experiments, I just threw a bunch of ideas down, which I like doing really early on and dug this piece out. We're like, what about this? And we put it on the beginning and we're like, holy crap, this is great. And that became the beginning and the ending of the film, which wow. is kind of crazy because it was the first, first thing I wrote and it was my sort of immediate gut response to the script. And that is now the beginning and ending of the movie. something you've got to go on a journey to come back around in a way sometimes as well do you know what I mean but that's so oh, yeah. great I mean, to, on this to movie, know that that's... we went on so <laughs> how many, many times around the world like, <laughs> yeah it's like I'm going from London to Brighton but let's go three times around the world to get there <laughs> each way left right up down backwards and forwards we went around a lot on this mm. every single way you think something could be done we tried it out then you've got all this you know all these tracks as well you know, and kind of after that, after the the, the previous film, um, we were we had it on in the car the other day. Actually, you know, um, Sunflower and What's Up Danger and all that kind of stuff as well. How does that work in terms of you know you met, you sort of mentioned it earlier, going oh this is a great bit and oh they're going to put a song in here sort of thing. That's another element that you've got to navigate because they can't just kind of like, you know, kind of mic drop into a scene and kind of oh, it's again. got. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but it has to have some kind of synergy, either side yeah, of it, well, in a way. Well, you know, most of the songs in this film were sort of produced by Metro Boomin, who is, like, he's great. I've, I think he's a great producer. And he also, you know, the, the number of, like, songs that were written for this film that were like, okay, let's try something else, let's try something else. Anytime yeah. I felt, like, bad about what, like, I had to keep going around, songs, are, they're like, nah, it doesn't work. So a lot of a lot of time and effort goes into getting those placements right, and it's a big part of of the film. Can and you make an opinion on that? Are you allowed an opinion on that as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can throw my opinion in, and uh, you know, there's times when it's listened to, and other times it's not. Like I think you know, there's things like the big ending originally wanted to have a a song over the kind of what I call falling apart, which is the bit where Miles is sort of racing back home. Mm -hmm. But then it just, you know, the hardest thing with songs is they deliver like 
one emotion often really, really well, but it's hard to do the storytelling that a score does. And then, and then in the, the clock tower sequence, that was originally all score. Well, it was song, then it went to score, and then it sort of went to half song, half score. But you know, it works. scenes and I said this to you is the Gwen and her dad scene the kind of the journey of that is amazing just how simple it starts and then it just grows and grows into this yeah do you mind talking specifically about yeah I mean I love that I I love that scene that whole scene was really weirdly written relatively quickly because I had the material just respond to it the performances are so good from the actors there and it's a really emotional scene and I think the thing I spent the most time on is the hug. It's a bit where they hug. Yeah. There's, there's hugs are big oh. in Spidey World. And it's like, how do you make that hug feel as warm and and sort of emotional as possible? Do you know what um, hug it reminded me of? E.T. and Elliot. Oh, really? Oh, good. That's good. I'll take that. So you sort of, it's, it's weird where you're like, I'll often... I, I like to score things, which is harder to do in Spidey because it moves so quick. So with Spidey, you're like, oh, we're here, now we're here, now we're here, now we're here. But the, the scenes I think that are most effective are where there are very powerful changes at key moments. And that scene is really all about this emotional build, the builds and builds and builds with her, her sort of speech to her dad. Then it cuts to her dad, and we go to what I call the family theme, which no one knows what that is, but every time there is an emotional moment, like a key family emotional moment. There's this theme that goes ba 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 ba, and it's one of the more hidden themes of the film. But if you really study the score, you'll hear it. And then it's all about the resolve on the on the hug. And then we do the twist. What's great about that is it puts you in a, a state where you think this is done. And then we do the twist where she gets to watch from Hobie, and then you're like, yes, we're back on. And that is probably also one of my favourite bits in the film in terms of the scoring and the way it it gives you a lot of different emotions. And I think the resolution with the father is very satisfying. And so you kind of, it kind of makes it feel like the scene's ended, but when you get there and now this, then you're like, yeah, we're back on.
Kristen's quite a big theme in it, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons people really connect with this movie is because you, you can relate to everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like I always say, Spider-Man is like the best superhero because he's the only one everyone, anyone, everyone relates to. Like basically Batman, unless you're like an uptight billionaire, you know, <laughs> you're not like, I know what it's like to be Batman. <laughs> Superman, he's like like a guy who's at the gym every day and that's not me. Same. Um, but Spider-Man's like, you know, he's like everyone. Every, anyone can be Spider-Man. Yeah. And I think at the core of that is, you know, his family and his relationship to his friends and his community. And I think that's what makes this film connect with so many people because, you know, most people have got some sort of relationship like that and yeah. they can see themselves in, in the stories on screen. Mm. And, you know, it's not about the action first. It's about the emotion first and the action being a result of the emotion. And that's why I think people, you know, connect with it because action scenes, to be honest, are boring. Like I've seen so many action scenes and when they come on, I'm just like, if I don't care about anything, you're just like, here's a bunch of people flying around, flying lasers at each other. And they're boring to score because often they just want it to feel exciting. And it's not because you've seen it so many times. Yeah. And so it's like, it only works for me if you do something different or you approach Mm -hmm. it differently or there's a strong emotional pull or moments in it. So all the action scenes in this, you know, what's interesting early on, I'd be like, Oh God, my score's not very good here. It's kind of boring. You know, the scores around it were good and we keep reworking it. And then we'd sort of like crack something and then you'd be like, Oh, now it's fun. This is a fun sequence or this is a scary sequence or this is, uh, you know, like the Guggenheim thing. It was something like, okay, we're going to bring all these characters together and, and then suddenly it's fun. It's all about like how many crazy ideas can I throw in? all these themes to suddenly all play together and pay off in one sequence uh, is kind of satisfying because I don't think in the sort of superhero world we get it enough I kind of love the Morricone thing of like this baddie's got this noise or this character's got this noise this one's got this noise and then that bit where they all play off together is super cool yeah well it's almost like that thing almost like kind of the characters as an orchestra in a way really isn't it you know in terms of each character is a different instrument and then together it kind of creates this can create this extraordinary thing how do they know when it's done is the, is the release date the thing of kind of going no, guys the movie's not done. we've got a, we've it's got a week <laughs> the movie is still like i don't know how much i can say but basically this movie is, is still is not 100 percent done you know the way george lucas kept bringing out star wars every five years yeah. i feel spider-verse is not far off that i definitely have heard rumors of things like well we'll, we'll, we'll do a different 
tweak on that for the home video release. <laughs> oh, um, yes. So this movie was done because it had to come out. If this movie wasn't coming out now and it got pushed six months, I would still be rewriting every single scene. It's a big, it's a, it's a big journey, this film, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. You've got to be so chuffed, though, with the response that the film's been getting and the spotlight that you're contribution and work and hard graft and creativity is hard to the to the success of it as well yeah I think what's been really nice is people starting to realize what I'm doing in the film and <laughs> I don't mean just like in terms of like doing the music but they're suddenly yeah. realizing you know how all these themes connect and how you can you know using themes in films is not a groundbreaking thing it's just it's so everyone's been slightly starved of it over the last sort of decades and being able to have thematic ideas and thematic sounds for ideas and characters and having them all pay off and people understanding that because there's stuff which is kind of obvious in terms of themes and there's loads of stuff that isn't obvious in this film like there's basically alongside the sort of what i call the spider-man theme and the destiny theme which which are kind of like linked to miles but they're really linked to any spider-man they're kind of to do with something that is like either being Spider-Man or moving towards fate or destiny or a future. But then you have all these other ideas. Like in the new one, we have the canon event. So there's a kind of sequence that refers to canon event. There's a sort of noise that refers to like the technology and the watch of Miguel and his world, family theme, sounds for each character's identities, even things like the very first sound you hear in the very first movie represents the multiverse and when uh, or spider-verse when miguel really starts to explain it that's when you hear that sound again so wow. there's kind of all these weird little audio easter eggs which are like all connected stuff like when we when we meet miles for the first time in this one we're also scratching all the sounds you see on screen so we're scratching the car crash the punches the felt tip pens when he's drawing and we're scratching spray cans. And then also at the very end, my favorite bit of the whole movie, we're scratching a goose. There's a bit we're scratching a goose. So you listen to the track, my name is Miles Morales. When you say you're scratching a goose, can you explain yourself? I'm not scratching it. Um, We're record scratching a goose. Yeah, yeah, scratching a goose sounds something you go to jail (laughs) for. Miles and the spot get caught up with a goose who gets sucked into their portal. And it's just a stupid moment. And because that sequence, I wanted to try and really play with the record scratching idea we'd done for the first one. And we have a great, this guy, DJ Blakey, who scratched all the first film. He's an amazing scratch champion. And so I was like, I got all those other sounds from the sound team. And I was like, right, let's just play these in and let's just work on them. And, and you know, you spend ages and it's literally two seconds. Chicka, chicka, ah, uh, like, you know. But <laughs> we got the goose bit and I was like, this bit needs something. I was like, why don't we do the goose? So we got the goose sound and then just scratched Brilliant. the goose. And it sounds awesome. I highly recommend oh my God, scratching I'm... goose geese. <laughs> it's a great geese sound. Scratch. Okay. I love it. And it's, if you listen to the end of my name is Miles Morales on the album, you can really hear it quite clearly. That's like exactly what one, I'm going to do after this. Goose scratch solo. <laughs> Thank you.
it's just that thing of I've seen the film once and you watch it and you just I was just so entertained by it whilst trying to make notes because I was you know hoping to get to chat to you about it and wanted to yeah. make sure that I'd made some notes about specific things something and I can't wait to kind of dive in two three four five times like I did with the first film and with every viewing you like you say you know you you're looking out for things or you discover things or you hear things and it's it's the way that it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving in terms of there's you're never going to be able to get to go oh yeah I heard and saw and experienced everything with these films because I think that would be impossible I mean even I've seen this film so many times and I went <laughs> when I went to premiere I was like oh, I never noticed that. Like, how did I not notice that? And I love that. You know, and it's, I mean, I was seeing things for the first time on the, on the premiere because up to that point, you know, there were still were scenes that were not finished. I was, sometimes I was working to very finished scenes. Sometimes I was working to literally pencil drawings that were like, like that. Yeah, wow. And there's so much in this film. And I think that's one of the things that like is satisfying about it because every department is just throwing everything at it. And so the film can take everything. You can, yeah, you can almost never put too much in. Sometimes, whereas other films, it's like probably really subtle, held back. But with this film, you know, you really can like throw everything out. I and mean, there's so yeah. in the music, there are so many layers of things that you won't even really notice, but they're in there. I'll put a kind of make sure before people listen to this, they 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 should have seen the film, and I'm sure they will have. But I didn't know there was another film going into watching this one sort of thing, right. and. And it was like, I, it went by so fast. And then when it kind of came up to be continued, I was kind of like, I was like, yeah. But then I was also like, I just didn't want it to end there just because I was so engrossed in the story and the characters and the worlds that it was kind of like, oh my God, that went by like that. Um, so I can't wait for for the next one. And I know you can't talk about it, but, um, and also you shouldn't as well. You should have a holiday. You should have a bit of time out. Um, oh yeah, of, of a normal. Like no, of, no one okay, on like that's going to happen. <laughs> no one on this film wants to talk about the next one. They're all just okay. like, uh, it's like it's basically like running, like it's running like three marathons, and you've done them back to back, and then you just finished. They go, congratulations, you finished. That was a great time. Yeah. So when you're doing the like, are you doing the next marathon next week, t- like tomorrow? And you're like, no. <laughs> Who am I, I'm Eddie Azard? Yeah. <laughs> To take your mind of it slightly then, just before I, I go, because I've kept you for way longer than I said I would. It was lovely to see, you know, you're a film fan as well, as obviously being in the world and, and being amazingly successful and creative. And it's lovely to see when you get excited about friends and kind of colleagues and the work that they are doing. And I think you were kind of equally as excited when the trailer for The Creator came out and, and seeing what kind of, what Gareth's doing next. I can't bloody wait for that as well. And I'm like, about time, mate. <laughs> I know. Well, I was. I stayed. I stayed around his house in LA like uh, last week, and the whole idea was we were finally going to have like a massive like night out because it was like he's been on that film for like almost seven years. And Jesus, when you're in a film, it's really hard. Like the outside world sort of disappears, and and it's really hard. And it, it kind of sucks for everyone else, and it's hard for people to understand because you know there's always some sort of crisis to deal with and if you don't deal with it now it could either lead like have knock-on effects that create loads more crises or that'll be it and i've had things where it's like oh man i should really sort this out because as much as i want to go out for drink if i don't get this right that could be it and then it's like that's it forever 
And so he's had that for a long time. So we've not really managed to have a real proper night out. Anyway, we meant to. And then he was like, oh, shit, I've got three more things I've got to do on it. <laughs> so we went out for a very uh, lightweight drink. Oh. But yeah, it looks it looks amazing. I think it's very satisfying. I mean, it's very satisfying for me because I feel Gareth is an amazing talent. Mm-hmm. And I feel he's been very gracious in his silence. Whereas I think there have been other people around who've been somewhat less gracious in their silence yeah. about his input on the movies he did. And I think this will show everyone what he's really capable of. And I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that. Me uh, too. For, the, for that <laughs> world. Because I think, you know, like I've known him since we were both doing TV stuff. He was making special effects in his bedroom. I was doing film scores in my bedroom, TV scores. And we both dreamed of doing films. And it's so crazy that we're both working in oh, Hollywood brilliant. now. It's wicked. Um, and listen, uh, with this conversation, you've now become the most, the guest with the most episodes on Soundtracking. So you've been the person who's been on the most. Okay. So thank you. Okay. Thank you. Is that good or bad? I yeah, it's awesome. It's so okay, good. Good. Yeah. Either that. It's like, I'm not elusive. Very easy to get hold of. No, you're no, you're, but that's the yeah. thing is you're not because you're so busy because you've always got so much on the go. So we're so grateful that you take yeah. the time to, to chat to us, Dan. You really, really am. Um, yeah, it's always a treat getting to chat to you. Really is. Thanks, mate. It's all right. No problems. Score to Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse that hold the baby, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the phenomenal Daniel Pemberton. My huge thanks to Daniel for taking the time to talk to us. The second instalment of the animated Spider-Man series is on general release now. I highly recommend that you go and see it. Um, Rudy, my 15, just turned 15 on Saturday, uh, was off to the cinema with some friends on Friday as a kind of double celebration of exams finishing and birthday. And from all the choices, and there's a lot there for him to choose from, straight in there for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and could not stop talking about it all weekend. So get along and see it. As you may know, Daniel has been on the show a number of occasions and we are eternally grateful, eternally even, grateful for his time and his conversation. And you can find all my conversations with him at edithbowman.com, including the one we conducted in his mad professor-esque studio. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtrack in UK, while our YouTube channel is home to all kinds of extra content. And we also love hearing from you. So please send us an email. It could be about anything, just 
I don't know, you've just discovered the podcast, you've got a suggestion, it could be a review of a film or just something you want to share with us. So please do that. Info at edithbowman.com. Next up, we're really excited. I mentioned this last week because I was lucky enough to be invited to host a kind of pre-show celebration of the 50th anniversary of Wickerman at the fabulous Picture House Central in London. And it was a, an amalgamation of special guests, people who'd been involved in the film, people who were just fans of the film, including Reese Shearsmith and Britt Eklund. So yeah, the 50th anniversary of Working Man. And it's the 21st of June, which is a week on Wednesday as of recording this. 21st of June, the Working Man is going to be in cinemas all over the UK. Uh, and that pre-show will be shown before the screening of the film. So on Monday's episode, we are going to give you a little bit of an insight into that pre-show, as well as a special conversation that we had with none other than Leslie Mackey. So if you've seen the film, do you remember that wee schoolgirl with a beetle in her desk? That's Leslie Mackey. Leslie Mackey and Gary Carpenter, who is one of the musicians who not only featured on the soundtrack, but also featured in the film. So a very special celebration of the Wicker Man 50th anniversary next week on the podcast. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs> 